welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. The scripture this morning for the message comes from Genesis chapter 8 and chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, about 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In Genesis 9, Moses writes, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to every living creature of all flesh. And I'm sorry, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God 
and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, we thank you for this gathering here this morning, this opportunity, the fact, Lord, that you have made the way for us to come and to be reconciled to you and to come to you and worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, we pray that the words that we, we issue here today will uh, be true and, be, and honor you and that they will be received with gladness and pierce our hearts, Lord. Let us hear with clarity and the strength that, is, um, that underlies each and every word that is contained in your word. And we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I think if we had a if we had a dollar for every time we mentioned covenant in this church, we'd have we'd be able to pay off that Seward Avenue <laughs> campus. But covenant is important, and as we look at this portion of scripture, we might recall God briefly mentioning the covenant that He will make before the flood happens in Genesis six eighteen that we looked at just a few short weeks ago. He said, "But I will establish I will establish my covenant with you." And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. In chapter 6 of Genesis, this is the first covenant that's explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Explicitly mentioned in Genesis. The term covenant simply means, uh, simply describes the formal binding together of two parties in relationship based on mutual personal commitment. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, we hear these words, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God blesses, blesses man with uh, an abundance of food source, but as Joe said earlier, there is a curse associated with this. And we see very... Whether or not we see the word covenant, there's very covenantal language being used here in this portion of the scripture. The man, Adam, receives the covenant on behalf of the rest of mankind. That's important to note for us. The word covenant is not explicitly used here, but as we observe in other portions of the Bible, the thing itself can be present, even if the ordinary word identifying it is not. For instance, there's a portion in 2 Samuel 7, verses 4 through 17. I'm not going to read them right this moment. We are familiar with them, though. When it, that portion of Scripture does not use the term covenant uh, when Nathan is charged by God to speak to David. But we see in the Davidic covenant, implicit, implicit in these words of Scripture, there, there is a covenant, there's covenant language there, and it's understood. It is implicit. But then if we, if we jump ahead to Psalm 89 and consider what King David has written there, it says in verses 3 and 4, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Covenant. Verse 28, My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Covenant. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Again, covenant. 
And when we go back to Genesis 8 and 9 now, we see God is explicit use of the word covenant with Noah, a kind of new Adam. And this passage is completely given over to God's initiative in making a covenant covenant with all humankind. Because we're talking about a universal flood here that affected the entire universe. And we, we talked at length about that uh, a couple sermons ago. The covenant with This covenant with Noah declared that God held life sacred and that humankind too must preserve life on the earth. So the major point in this section is the establishment of an unconditional unilateral covenant by God himself. And from this point on, the God of Israel will be known as a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Now as we look into chapter 9 of Genesis specifically, I want to work through the uh, work briefly through the verses that I just read. In one through four, again, I'll reiterate it. It says, "And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply in all the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you." And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, God's speech here is very reminiscent of what we see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. And it talks about in that that particular portion of Scripture, God blessing Adam, blessing Eve, and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and tells them to fill the earth. And that he has given them, uh, given, the, given them every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. But it's, I think you see that there's a couple important changes that are introduced here later on in Genesis in chapters in chapter nine here. The positive instruction that God gave to exercise dominion over the living creatures is replaced by the negative comment that these creatures will now fear and dread human beings. And whereas, as well, the emphasis previously was on people consuming plant life for food, humans are now given express permission to be carnivores. So it stands to reason that these creatures were heretofore were we, we cohabited with and uh, were, were sharing our salad, salad in the evening with, now becomes a choice piece of meat on the plate for us. You can imagine why they began to develop this uh, severe uh, abhorrence of humans and wanted to, wanted to stay clear of them. They've now become prey to what we are. But God has given us permission to eat that meat now, and we do, and we do it with, with gladness and joy. But while God now permits the eating of animal life for food, the animal's blood remain sacred. And we see that certainly in Leviticus, particularly chapter 17. It's not consumed as an acknowledgement that all life is from God. And I would invite you to go back, if you can, and find the sermon on uh, Genesis chapter 4 when we talked about Cain and Abel and talked about the blood of Abel being in the ground and crying out for justice from God and the value of that blood and the fact that the, the blood represents life. And God puts a prohibition on eating that flowing blood, if you will. And as we move through Genesis 9 and, and go into 5 and 6, it says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning 
from every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. That's just mean, it means that every animal or person that takes a human life will be held accountable. Be, be held accountable by God working through human representation. And this is a verse we would look at if we wanted to think about and have conversation and dialogue about capital punishment, for instance. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now here's this principle of lex talionis, okay? And our, our Latin students here know what that is. It's the law of retribution in kind. It's uh, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That, that, that is the lex talionis. And this measured response is important for us, that... We don't, um, you know, that I don't, if, if, I, if I get punched in the nose and my nose is broken, that I don't go find the perpetrator and shoot him and kill him. That there's a measured response here. Unlike in chapter 4 of Genesis, right, we see Lamech going, you know, he, he, he sought vengeance on somebody who offended him 77-fold. The uh, human life is to be valued so highly that it is protected by this lex talionis because God made man in his own image. So to murder a human being is to murder what is most like God and therefore implicitly an attack on God himself. And you know, when we get into the New Testament as well, when we read Paul, we see Paul, there's a lot of conversation from Paul, a lot of dialogue from Paul about sin and, sex, and particularly sexual sin. And when you look at sexual sin, it's often sin against our own body, and it's also sin that's perpetrated against the body of another individual. And remember, we're talking about the image of the image bearers of God here, so that's very important. And as we look at nine, eight through seventeen, again, I just read that, but I want to highlight just a few of the verses that are in here. Verse 9, it says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring. In verse 11, it says, I establish my covenant with you. In verse 12, it says, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature. And God talks about, he establishes these covenants. It's him that does it. And then he gives us a sign from heaven. I have established this, I'm going to show you. And when we think about the signs in the Bible, there's essentially two different signs. Some are miraculous, what the Bible calls signs and wonders. In Moses, we see, for those of us who are reading the To the Word Bible, uh, we've seen it recently. Moses gave a series of signs such as those to Pharaoh, proving that God is truly the sovereign God of the universe. And in the New Testament, we see the miracles of Jesus, and in fact, in the Gospel of John, John the Evangelist calls them signs, that Jesus, Jesus performs these signs. Where it show that Jesus was, as Nicodemus confessed to him in chapter 3, that he was a teacher who has come from God. The second kind of biblical sign is not miraculous, uh, at least not necessarily so. It is a, a symbol of spiritual truth. And, of course, we have seen the miraculous and the symbols overlap often. We see Jesus, in fact, uh, feeding the 5,000 with just a, a few loaves and a couple fish. We see him multiply that, that meager portion of food that, that fed such a multitude. 
And then we see the spiritual truth that can be associated with that when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The only one who can satisfy the true needs of a human soul. One of those great I am statements from Jesus. So as we look at these signs, the last time I was up here, we talked about God, um, God remembering. That Noah was shut up on this, on this ark for 370 days. And we talked a little bit about, and I was speculating a bit, because it's not explicit in the word of God, how it must have been as the waters began to accrue and, and gather what must have been going on in their minds as they thought about all of humanity um, being, being subject to the wrath of the judgment of God on the earth. We had Noah in, in, in the ark for 370 days, and the flood, when we think about it, was certainly a holocaust of, of epic proportions. We talked about the trauma that Noah must have gone through as God judged the earth and all its inhabitants. But now we're here in chapter 9, and we see that God has given Noah a sign for, as a covenant, for the covenant that he has established. It's a sign of remembrance of God's grace. His essence is that of beauty. The beauty of the rainbow symbolizes the grace that God ministers to Noah at a, very, at a time when he has been subject to, to a very disturbing and very difficult uh, thing. And if there's one thing in the early chapters of the Bible that we may have a bit of a complaint about is... The fact that we, as we've started in Genesis 1, verse 1, and now we're, we're, we've arrived here in Genesis chapter 9, the narrative has actually gone by very quickly, very rapid. There's not a lot of detail in it. And I think sometimes when, we, when I know when I read it, it's like, boy, I wish I knew a little bit more. I wish, I wish Moses would have, I wish the Holy Spirit would have inspired Moses to give us a little more detail about some of the things going on. You know, what was what was what are more some finer details about the life of uh, the culture and the society uh, that Seth was in and all these things? But they, they kind of flies by pretty quickly. But here we arrive in chapter nine of Genesis, and all of a sudden things really slow down, and we see this iteration and reiteration that God God will provide, that God will establish this covenant with Noah. Chapter 6, I'm going to establish a covenant. Chapter 8, we get the covenant in detail. Chapter 9, God expands it even more fully, saying, I'm never again going to destroy the earth by flood. So we can count on that, right? So why the reiteration? Certainly it's not for God's sake. It harkens back to when we talked about God remembering. God doesn't forget. He doesn't, do, he doesn't need a rainbow to remind him of anything. He doesn't need a sign or a symbol to remind him of anything. Remember, it's for Noah's sake that God repeats phrases, I establish my covenant. It shall be a sign of my covenant. And God gives Noah and all mankind, for that matter, a beautiful rainbow in the sky as a reminder rather, of God's pledge and promise. Our God is a God of beauty. And he makes signs of beauty to say, I know life is full of tragedy. I know life is full of brutality. I know there are difficult things that we face every day in our life. 
I know sin is ugly. But I am a God of beauty. And we don't have to go far. Here we are in Lewis County. We're not in downtown Chicago. We're not in Los Angeles. We're not in Detroit. We're not in uh, Seattle or Portland or any of these major cities that are going through some of the most horrific things. But we see it around here, too, as people go about their day and they're in a hurry to get to nowhere. Cars zooming by and all that. And as I was thinking about this portion of Scripture, I, I started smiling because if you go down, if you go into Chehalis, some of you have, and you go down, I think it's Pacific or whatever. What's your what's your coffee house on, Frank? Is it Pacific? It's Pacific. <laughs> well, anyway, there's the Stout Coffee House there, and I'm gonna tell you, it's a really busy road. People just zooming by and going nuts, and there's there's a place next to it. There's all these things going on in the world, and. At the Stout Coffee House, at their front door, in the corner of the little window, there's this little piece of paper here, and it's got this beautiful rainbow on it, and it says, God's promises. And Ava Stout did that, right, Ava? You know, and I, and I look at that, and I, I saw it, and, and I'm, I'm going to confess something to you. One of the first things I thought was, uh-oh, because of the way our world is because of the way the culture of our world is I thought boy they're just inviting a brick man to come come through that window because people don't like that but I looked at it uh, and I thought this is just beautiful and it's wonderful it's such a statement you know and I don't think Ava thought this way I suspect she didn't but I see an element of defiance in that little sign but I also see this, this beauty there. Because we know the rainbow has been, it has been hijacked and appropriated by others that don't, certainly don't, aren't, aren't intended to honor God. But we have our little sign there and it says God's promises. And we've been talking a lot about the promises of God. And there it is. And I just, it just makes me smile when I see it. And I'm glad to be, I'm glad to be a person who goes through that door. And is able to hold my head up and say God's promises are true because God made those promises. God gives us signs and the sign, for instance, for the lonely, if you will. We spoke of the loneliness Noah must have felt, even though he had his immediate family around him. I remember as a young, young boy, I was the oldest of the seven kids. And uh, we, always, we always seemed to live in a house that did not exceed one or two bedrooms. So, I mean, we were all up on each other all the time. And I know, I always, I just felt lonely <laughs> because I always had these people around me. I couldn't, I couldn't shake them. But I felt lonely. And as we think about Noah, even though he had his family around him and he had all these critters in the ark with him, right? He's stuck on there for 370 days knowing that all of humanity is, 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 being take, is being taken care of. They're going to be gone. And as I thought about Noah, it made me think about another, another person, Abraham. And we talked about Abraham, and he's come up lately in our reading and things. 
The other term that's come up lately with us is that we we consider ourselves a bit of a pioneer when we look at the, the, the school. So when we look at Abraham, we think of Abraham as being a pioneer. The fact that God called him and said, take you and your immediate family and rise up and leave the Ur of the Chaldees and I want you to go all the way across the Arabian Desert and I want you to settle in Palestine. Abraham trusted and he obeyed God. And like Noah, Abraham is in this foreign place surrounded by his immediate family in a land that was not his own. But what does God do for Abraham? What's he do for him? He gives him a sign. God shows Abraham on a crystal clear night what his posterity will number and look like. Not only do the multitude of stars and the galaxies in the sky indicate his physical and numeric offspring that God promises for him, but also a vast spiritual offspring. You know, if you're lonely, think about the message God has for us in the story of Abraham. Think about it. It's as if God says, I have a, I have a great host of children and you forever have a place among them. That's a powerful thing. And you know, one of the beautiful things about living in Lewis County, and I've lived in urban areas quite often, is the lack of, is, is the lack of really hard harsh ambient light so we can go out we can go out into our backyards down here and without that light we can look up and guess what we can see the heavens and they declare the glory of God and we can we can feel that association and attachment to what God told Abraham I know as a young soldier when Kay and I got engaged I was at Fort Bragg North Carolina she's going to school up in Minnesota and I missed her terribly and I was very lonely and I uh, wanted to be with her. And um, I know often, I, I remember being out on maneuvers or whatever, I would look up and I would see a moon and I would go, you know what, my, my girl can see that moon too. And she's looking at it. The same time maybe as I am. And it brought me a lot of comfort. And it should bring us comfort too. That God pulled Abraham out and he said, look up there and I'm going to show you something. And I'm going to tell you something and because it's me telling it to you, it's going to be true and it's going to be real. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. A great multitude that no one could number. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not denigrate. I'm not saying people don't get lonely and it's not real. But what I am saying is, we we sometimes we have to work a little harder to be reminded and know that listen, we are not alone. We are not alone, that we are all together, and we're going to hear that refrain in a little while when we come to the Lord's table, right? We are not alone. God gives signs to those who may feel like they're in a fugitive status, if you will. I think of Jacob. We just read his story in Genesis, the the middle and uh, later chapters of Genesis. You know, I think about Jacob, man, you know, he was a mama's boy. He was a deceiver and he was a contender. I don't know, I told Kay the other day, I don't know if I would have hung out with Jacob. 
know, because I'm a tough guy. But these traits of, of Jacob's caused him to be alienated from his family uh, to a point that he becomes a fugitive as he has to flee because well, Esau wants, wants to kill him because he deceived Esau. You know, in a way, you can't blame him. But remember now, remember the important things here. What did God tell Rebekah, Jacob's mom? He said, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older, what? Shall serve the younger. Rebekah Rebecca remembered that. And I think she tried to help it along a little bit. But nonetheless, that's what Rebekah received from God. So now we see Jacob on the run. He's a fugitive. And what does God do? Because we know Jacob's the chosen one. Because the younger will serve the older, right? God told Rebekah that. So, okay, how's this going to work out? What's, how's, how's, this, how's God going to make this happen? Well, we go into Genesis 28, and there's a few verses here. Let me sh- share them with you. But there's, there's a sign in here. There's a symbol. There's something for Jacob. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. What a sign for a man on the run. What a sign for the fugitive Jacob. As he he left the comfort of his home and went out into the world. The clear revelation of God's gracious dealings can can transform a worldly individual into what? Into a worshiper of God. We see the renewal of the Abrahamic covenant here with Abraham's grandson and the validation that the blessing was indeed his. It belonged to Jacob. So as we encounter these signs in the Bible, I want to close this message by reiterating two points from earlier. So back quickly just to the two verses, or the three verses rather in Genesis 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of the, and and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. This short comment from God by God about the effects of proper sacrifice underscores the importance of sacrifice in the biblical revelation of God's plan for redemption. Sacrifice is important. 
But you know, most of us have read Hebrews 10, verse 4. <clears throat> excuse me. It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Okay, so Noah comes straight off the ark and immediately takes the clean animals. He sacrifices them to God. God finds them a pleasing aroma. And that's a good thing. But yet, if we fast forward now to Hebrews 10, verse 4, it says, The blood of bulls and goats will not, will not take away sins. And we've also likely read Romans 6, where the Apostle Paul says, tells us that the wages of sin is death. It's God's only recourse for a guilty sinner. His justice demands it. And it must be paid. There is no alternative. Listen, there's no do-overs here. There's no do-overs for sinners. Yet, the sacrifice of the animals is not good enough to remove the sin. So now I ask you to remember the ladder. Remember the ladder in Jacob's dream. The Lord stood above the ladder and he spoke to Jacob things that encouraged the young fugitive and changed him forever and reminded him that he is the one who would receive the blessing. God stood at the top of the ladder while angels ascended and descended. And as we have been in Genesis, these early parts of Genesis, we go back now even farther to chapter 3, where God said, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. So the time comes where that is going to be fulfilled. The time comes when God, who is at the top of the ladder watching angels ascend and descend, comes down the ladder. God himself comes down the ladder. He came to earth, God himself, Jesus Christ, came to accomplish those things in which we can't accomplish. To do the thing that we couldn't do. You know, I ask you, what, what's, a, what's a guilty sinner to do? We're doomed, right? But God came down the ladder. There's this covenant of redemption that's implied in the Bible between the Trinity. That God would redeem sinners and reconcile them to him. And there's a sign that's associated with that. And I want to take you to an evening where there's a bunch of shepherds out in the field guarding their sheep, taking care of their sheep, living with their sheep, staying with their sheep. These lowly shepherds. And the story goes like this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, 
who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, there was the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. What a sign is that, right? God himself came that night as an infant baby. The Lord, the Lord Jesus came as God came as a, as a human baby. No bigger than Alice, no bigger than Barrett, no bigger than Evelyn. Fully human, yet fully God. And it's only fitting that there was not some kind of uh, a train that came down with with Jesus clothed in all these garments and uh, like you would see King Charles now in England because those wouldn't, those wouldn't even approach the majesty and glory of God what more fitting way for Christ for God to come to earth than as, than as a human being as a baby Blowing snot and crying and doing all the fussing and mussing. He was fully human, yet he's fully God. He descended the ladder and came to earth as incarnate God. And as Paul says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's something we need to understand, there's something we need to we need to take hold of and not forget it. The fact is, is that whether you believe it or not, you have an eternal soul. You are an eternal soul. And your soul, when you shuffle off this mortal coil, will go somewhere. We're not annihilationists here or inhiliationists, or whatever the term is. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't distinguish that. But your, your eternal soul will go somewhere when it departs your body. And it's going to go one of two places. It's either going to be cast into hell, or you will join Christ in heaven. With all the saints. That's a fact. That's true. So we, as, we have, as we've had this, as a human race, we have this cosmic dilemma of, I, I can't do anything to satisfy God. I can't do anything to satisfy Him. I can't do anything to pay the debt that I owe Him. I can't do anything to assuage his wrath. I can't do anything to satisfy this God because he is righteous and he is holy and he is just and his justice demands justice. There's nothing I can do. I'm literally helpless. 
But here we have God leaving his leaving the, the great throne and coming down here and, and joining us on this planet. And we see we see Jesus Christ living an impeccable life. He lives a life that fulfills every dot and tittle and iota of the law. A law that we 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 could not meet ever. Jesus fulfilled it. So it is by works that we are saved. It's just not our works. It's the works of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's upon Jesus Christ whom we put our hope. For it's by grace, the grace of God, who calls you to be saved. For it's by grace we have been saved through faith, and not of ourselves, not works of our own that we may boast, but we boast in Christ. I would call you scarred. I would call you lonely. I would call you fugitives. I would call all you lost. To come to Jesus. Jesus said all that the Father gives him will come to him. Whoever comes to him will never be cast away. So two things. I know I'm preaching to the choir here today, but listen, nary a day should go by when we don't preach the gospel to ourselves. Because the gospel, the gospel makes us grateful. The gospel makes us glad. The gospel reminds us of, of who we are in Christ. The gospel reminds me of who you are in Christ. And we should never let that go. We should never grow tired of it. We should never grow so familiar with it that we begin to develop some kind of contempt for it. Or we should never become so familiar with it that we become very at ease with it. But if you're here and you don't belong to Christ, and you feel that call in your heart, that's God calling you. It's not me. It's, it's the word of God piercing your heart. And if you come to him, he will in no way cast you away. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.